This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Lores, and today we're going to be doing yet another mega three-way episode of Movies, Dissecting Cinema, and Ratings. We're going to be discussing Todd Phillips, Joker. Hey, 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 Mr. Franklin. Come on. That's all bullshit. Thank you, Murray. I feel like I know you. I've been watching you forever. With the face. I mean, are you part of the process? No. No, I don't believe any of that. For a good portion of time, I forgot that this movie was even a thing. I remember it coming up initially when they had Martin Scorsese set to produce. A lot of people were like, oh, that'll never happen. That ain't gonna happen. That's just talk. Because WB and, uh, and DC love to say, oh, we're doing these five movies in 2020. And then you get to 2020 and maybe one of them has come out. I had a feeling this was going to come out. I didn't really give much thought to it, though. I had read some spoilers about it. I found the, the what I had read very interesting. Now, a lot of those things didn't pan out in the finished product of the film. But I was hyped opening day when this movie came out, which I cannot say about 99.9% of comic book properties. So I just wanted to gauge where were you guys at? When Joker started to pick up press and momentum, I think for me um, initially, I just I just didn't give a shit about this movie because it just sounded like another origin story, and I, I, those are tireless or just so tiresome. Even when it's the first edition of a new series, like how many times have we seen Peter Parker's fucking uncle get killed by a bum on the side of the street or whatever? Like, so I I hate origin story tropes and cliches and whatnot but as time kind of went by and things picked up and more information was being uh, let out about this movie I began to be more encouraged although I didn't have that much faith in Todd Phillips the thing that I was sold on from the get-go was once they had announced Joaquin Phoenix I know there was some talk I think in the early stages of uh, DiCaprio maybe taking on the role and that wouldn't have sold me at all. I never would have seen this movie if that was the case. But well, Warner Brothers is always pushing DiCaprio into this Batman franchise. They tried to get Christopher Nolan to include the Riddler in Dark Knight Rises and have DiCaprio play him. I don't know if he was ever actually in contention. It seemed like Joaquin was an early pick of at least Todd Phillips. Um, I wasn't as skeptical about Todd Phillips because on the way back from my last trip to Florida, I had watched War Dogs on the plane, and it felt like Scorsese Jr. Which, Wolf of Wall Street, I gotta say, I'm not even a fan of that one. Like, I, it, really? I, I think it's Scorsese's worst movie that I've seen. And I, oh, I couldn't disagree I've more. seen a lot of his movies. I, I, it's just, that just does nothing for me. But I, I, I don't want to go too off on a tangent uh, for that. I'll say that I, I didn't see War Dogs by Phillips so, because I was turned off by his commercial crap that he was making like the three hangover movies and like I, I was just done with hearing his name especially after those three came out and it was pretty much any any like crap goofball comedy that he was vaguely attached to I think was being marketed under his name and though I did see some things in even even some of his bad efforts that I had liked whether it was uh, the visual style or just the, the cinematography that he he tended to go with. I did like some of those things. I, I was just done hearing this guy's name because I had no interest in any of the kinds of kinds of movies that were being associated with him. So when I had heard that he was taking on this new Joker movie, I just said, Really this this is the guy? This is the guy that's gonna that's gonna tackle this real, apparently gritty take on an origin story with uh, who is who I consider one of the best actors of this generation in Phoenix. So this was a really weird mix, mix bag for me. But after seeing a few snippets of the previews and whatnot, and, ju and just seeing the style that they were bringing in, letting drip from the screen with this movie, I, I was sold. So, and here we are talking about it. I don't think I, I don't think I necessarily gave a shit when I heard that it was Todd Phillips attached to it, because again, like everybody else, you kind of get the the, the frat, frat boy director style out of the guy. So with with the with the the J what the the Jared Leto Joker that currently exists, as soon as 
somebody else that, that seems like they might uh, kind of want to work that young millennial zeitgeist a little bit shows up and attaches themselves to a Joker. That's what I'm going to think of. Yeah, the current the current state of DC Comics films has been really poor, also with the, with the exception of like Shazam, I guess. So it's got really critically, yeah, critically, it's got no momentum behind it as far as a DC film film goes, as far as the director goes, and it's really only Joaquin Phoenix that got my attention at all. Then, like, like I say, as a little bit it came out at a time, it's okay, this looks a little bit better. I think the setting interests me the most. This maybe late 70s, early 80s setting is way more interesting to me than the more, I guess, modern takes that a lot of people will have simply because of the, the bare bones and lack of connectivity that people have in, in, in there, which you really feel the lack of connectivity there, even down to... Uh, Arthur Fleck needing to use a payphone to get fired. You know, th- things like that, I think, add to the aesthetic. So hearing about hearing stuff about the film was way more interesting than hearing initially that it was going to exist. They actually took footage of Jared Leto's Joker out of the trailer for Birds of Prey so that people wouldn't get confused as to what film they were seeing when they were there. How can you how can you go back to that at all? I especially after this movie. How, how do you not disassociate every single frame that motherfucker chewed up in that role? I I, I can't even believe that Warner or DC would even think to. <laughs> try to try to put their feet back in the water with that rendition of the character, especially after this one, which outside of this show, everybody's been lauding. So, oh, I, I imagine the balls. Oh, not everybody. Not everybody. We've talked about that Birds of Prey movie and what is in store for it. If you want to tune into the Spawn episode, I spoil it greatly. Uh, I completely agree. I think... Warner Brothers would be foolish to not go and uh, bust into that editing suite and say, hey, we got to remove this Joker from every frame and just cleanse his being from this property. I mean, not that Birds of Prey is uh, going to be anything other than a giant box office disaster anyway. I think they know what they're in for, and that's why Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn is going to be in James Gunn's uh, Suicide Squad reboot. I think uh, I think they're fully aware of what is going to happen with that movie at this point. There's fan theories out there because of... And this started with that awful Fox TV show Gotham, which is not dissimilar in its plot, where you have this wacky guy who uh, is um, inspiring hordes of people to wear clown masks. Uh, and there were a lot of theories. Well, you know, the way that they had to do that with that show, because they weren't allowed to call the Joker the Joker at that point, now they just don't give a shit. You can have 50 Jokers. Jerome. They called him Jerome and like Jeremy or something. And it was like, it was like, well, actually, this is not the Joker, but maybe he inspires the Joker. So, okay, you're saying Joker's derivative, that he's just a boring piece of shit who stole his identity <laughs> from somebody else. Yeah. That's what you're saying. That's what you're implying here. And people love that Jerome character on Gotham. If you go on Instagram and type in Joker, you will see him next to Heath Ledger, and people will be like, who's the best one? I know it's close, but you got to vote. Jerome or Dark Knight Joker. So there's a lot of that left over. And obviously, there's similarities between the two stories here. And, um, you know, people want something that fits with the Batman canon. That's going to be coming with uh, uh, Robert Pattinson, Matt Reeves, and Zoe Kravitz, we found out yesterday, will be playing Catwoman. They want it to fit somehow. But no, he's the Joker. He calls himself Joker. The movie's called Joker. He's the... I'm sorry, you're fooling yourself. You're delusional. You're stupid if you think that there's going to be a new Joker inspired by Joaquin Phoenix. It would be so lame. Uh, Jerry, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it to you real quick. I just wanted to add, because you're talking about what the future might mean for these types of movies. They are reportedly considering doing a Lex Luthor runs for president movie with no Superman at all, no trace of Superman. So literally just like a political film. Trump, Trump the movie. <laughs> well, I think I think that it would be better for DC to focus on standalone projects like this that do maybe carry over some total there is some total consistency like jake is saying 
But I think in terms of Joker, Batman would fucking suck in this world because the power that Joker eventually has comes from the fact that, you know, nobody has guns, right? It's established very early on when he acquires that, that snub nose. Nobody else has a gun. You're the dude that has a gun. Cops might have a gun, but the street violence that's going on, there's no gun. There's no reports of shootings in the newspaper, right? They're in the middle of like political turmoil. The crime that's going on is mostly, uh, you know, it's violent, but it's it's contained to acts of violence, like like physical acts of violence outside of actually just shooting people, right? So Joker eventually getting the gun or Arthur Fleck eventually getting the gun and using it uh, at the the at the talk show in the way that he does gives him a level of power that fits the grit and the aesthetic of the the currently built world and i think that if you add in a guy that wears latex and shoots a grappling hook you ruin that aesthetic i think batman is a fucking goofy character superheroes are fucking goofy villains villains uh- are typically less goofy in a lot of ways and i think jerry are are you familiar at all with the uh darren aronofsky adaptation of batman year one that almost mm-hmm. happened maybe about 20 years ago, 19 yeah, yeah, years yeah. ago? Uh, loosely i think that kind of batman could fit into this universe easily maybe where it's just it's it's not really the christopher nolan batman where even that is like grounded in reality but it's still not really or uh, or the Michael Keaton, I have rubber abs on my outfit, uh, Batman, where <laughs> it, it, it's this uh, giant bulky suit. I think you could have that Batman, your one Batman, who has like a cloth outfit, who is just, you know, learning the ropes and uh, maybe doesn't have his wealth. And that could fit within. Yeah, this. Well, and that's sort of what I've always thought that we would need for a lot of other superhero films if we wanted to take them out of let's say outside of the avengers realm and significantly less cartoony than the first few spider-man if you take spider-man and put him in uh, a ski mask and a red shirt and some blue pants and make him have next to none of the the good spider-man skills and just like a little bit of strength a little bit of webs and he can kind of climb the the walls you can expand on the character of Peter Parker, which is, I think, what Joker does. Rather than saying he's a criminal mastermind right from the get-go, he he gets laughing gas, or he has this master plan to take over the city, it's instead a dude who slowly pushed to the edge to... that. That's like the uh, almost the cliche for Jokers, is that, that the Joker becomes the Joker because of one bad day. And it incorporates some of the bad days from other origin stories, almost origin stories of the Joker, where he performs stand-up and nobody likes it, where he has uh, uh, like the social autism and he doesn't fit in with society. Now, building on that character within this gritty world is a lot of fun. And I think that the moment that you add, there's also a guy who uh, trained with a, a, a clan of ninjas in order to eventually use the billions of dollars that he has to buy super tech that lets him beat bad guys as as bad as Batman eventually has to deal with. It doesn't fit the, this guy has a gun and can blow your fucking brains out, and that just scared everybody. You know, it's it's a little different. Like, like you said, it could fit into there. And I think that the realism of the Bruce Wayne character is probably more easily explored within this universe than a a batman but there's room for adapting that same tone in future dc projects that almost might make it seem like a connected universe without it actually being a connected universe let let me give you a, a really normie example is you could probably tell fans of both shows that parks and rec and the office were filmed maybe separately but by the same production team to put on TV. They feel very much like they exist within the same world, right? And even though they have completely different standalone storylines, nobody interacts with each other or anything, they feel like they're set in the same world because they had one adapted the other one's style so heavily. 
you could adapt the Joker style into, I think, a lot of other characters. Two-Face wouldn't be bad in that world. A political Lex Luthor wouldn't be bad in that world either. It would depend on the social commentary. But the grittiness of this setting, I think, really works perfect for the Joker. It sh- it should it should be noted. I don't think most people realize this, but the type of clown, even that this Joker is specifically, is a white face clown that breaks a major clown rule, and that they don't use pointed edges. Happy clowns will never have like triangles on their eyes, and most of the time their mouth uh, makeup is like smeared. Those soft edges are yeah, friendly. Just the clowns that that lure in boys, <laughs> right? And kill them and plant them Actually, in the basement. Exactly. <laughs> the, in the, this version of Joker is more closely like Pogo than any other crazy clown, other than the one from what was like the Terrifier or whatever. Which that's more of a Pagliacci clown, anyways. But even still, and, and we get a reference to Pogo. The comedy club is Pogo's yep, yep, comedy and the, club. That's. That's that Todd Phillips influence. I actually really like Todd Phillips outside of The Hangover because I know it's a dude who likes the the gritty New York underground from the 80s and early 90s that I think a lot of us really want back in a lot of films. And it's cool to see him apply that in a 2019 film when everybody else wants to show you how um, diverse and, and uh, <clears throat> happy and bright and colorful places like Brooklyn might be, I'm more interested into the way the city was when it was at the end of a the middle of a crime, crime spree and a crack ep- epidemic. And that's really the Gotham that we get. So the Robert Pattinson Batman, there was a, an initial report that said that movie was going to take place during the 90s. So it would be about 15 years after the events of this, which Jake had said before. So he would be a bit older. I think in this movie it's established that he's in his mid-30s, right? Yeah, yeah, about 35. Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne is maybe 12 years old. So there, there'd be about a 15-year gap, but that's not that unusual. I mean, if we go back to the Nicholson Joker and Michael Keaton, there was roughly a 10, 15-year gap between those two. Uh, Batman was actually quite a bit older than the Joker in the Dark Knight, Heath Ledger was only twenty eight years old when he played that part. Um, so it's not that it's not that strange. I mean, Jared Leto's Joker and Margot Robbie 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 have about twenty years between them. Well, and I think that that these aren't characters in this setting that would fight; they would have a confrontation. So I think a fight would look weird. Uh, Robert Pattinson and and Joaquin Phoenix fighting each other. Like Batman's muscle manipulation, right? The fact that he's stronger in his attempts, let's say like in the Dark Knight, whenever he's trying to beat the Joker up and the Joker's just laughing at it, like this isn't going to stop you. Those, it wouldn't make sense for 70-year-old Joker to be laughing through getting punched in that scene. Where it, it, So it, their physical confrontations have to be changed to... More like, yeah, yeah, more, more, more mental con- confrontations, which is what this film does the whole time is take a guy who's b- basically every time he interacts with somebody, they're needing to fight through his personal inner conflict in order to have a conversation with him. And he himself has to fight through that inner conflict in order to absorb what they're saying. And he almost never does. And they almost never get through to him. Like like the regular Jared Leto Joker, yes. Wearing uh, furry pimp jackets in, in cl- nightclubs. Fucking kill me. Trying to cuckold himself to common. Well, and, oh, and then there, there's the change that Arthur Fleck goes through in the film, too. Because he does go from very meek into that final scene where he's almost relishing the fact that now he has some attention from people that at least understand this, this basic aspect of his personality his his disdain for now the perception of authority. Right. And to carry on that Joker character into a second film, it doesn't just mean that that character is changed from what made it, really good at the beginning it means they have to find a new way to articulate this character's problems that make him do these things otherwise he's a no motivation villain at that point he 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 accomplishes the thing that he sets out for which you almost never see the supervillain do 
So it, if you wanted a second film, you almost wrote yourself into a wall with the character. That's what makes me think that there's no intent on using that Joker again for anything or that aesthetic again. At best, it would be a Bruce Wayne showing back up to Gotham, you know, after his years of training and having it be similar to what we see in Batman Begins, where the city is taken over by crime and there's no balance to anything at all, and a Batman vigilante is necessary. Well, I, I think that just goes to show how well they managed to establish this Joker character uh, in lieu of the Batman uh, uh, polar opposite figure being almost completely out of the picture, right? But if that were to occur, then, I mean, it would just have to be accepted that he's not going to be at the forefront, in that case, because then we have a Batman movie. So I don't know if these problems would necessarily be as as prominent as maybe we're thinking about right now, uh, because it wouldn't be an equal landscape, or it shouldn't be an equal landscape to even that of that Batman character, even though we've seen that happen before, at least twice before. Um, why don't? But I, I mean, this, this is all presumptuous talk that they will bring this character back at some point. Um, I think we should probably just delve into the movie itself because we've gotten a little, little off track as far as that goes. Yeah, let's let's do it. I, I mean, uh, draw the parallels for one. Like this is obviously very uh, inspired by Taxi Driver. That's been in pretty much every press junket that Todd Phillips and Joaquin Joaquin Phoenix, Phoenix excuse me, have talked about. Uh, they've also said it borrows from uh, the King of Comedy, both Scorsese classics, and. I, to me, it didn't feel too derivative watching this. I felt that there was still a very self-contained, yeah. very honest forefront kind of narrative here that just borrows those elements from Taxi Driver and King, uh, King of Comedy. For example, uh, I, I was talking about it with a friend uh, not too long ago, and they made the comparison to Taxi Driver and said, like, oh, man, uh, like Taxi Driver is pretty fucked up at the end, but this one's even more. And I said, no, 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 this is like the polar opposite to taxi driver because taxi driver is the ending is really about the kind of duality that uh, a person can teeter on between doing something horrible and then doing something great. And taxi driver ends on that note of uh, Travis Bickle with the intentions of doing something evil actually falls on the other side of, of this uh, uh, dichotomy and ends up being a hero by the film's end. This goes the completely different route of a guy who very well could be just a, a good-hearted guy that it's fallen on tough times, but when he's given so many disadvantages, he just goes off the rails and becomes the evil side of that dichotomy. So so I, w I was um, pretty happy with that they went in that direction and left almost no good left in the character, that he, he, he takes pride and joy in doing these horrible things by the end and explains it to an audience of millions of people on TV. Well, there's uh, attention to the detail in the story development and character development in that rather than having Arthur Fleck take constant L's back to back to back, like uh, another film that I, I saw recently where the main character just c consistently takes L's and then eventually goes on a shooting spree. This character, he has some, wins at least his perceived wins so whenever he eventually hooks up with the what's zazzy is that the actual actor's name is that her zazzy, zazzy beach. beach she plays a character Atlanta. named sophie <laughs> it's so uh yeah so, so <laughs> sophie his neighbor up up the road sophie. so he eventually gets with her and that's a win for him his the stability that sort of comes for him in that situation is a win that gets stolen from him rather than having him constantly take L's. It's beautifully structured in that way that it, it, it I don't see taxi driver doesn't really have that, that thing where Travis Bickle is taking uh, uh, L's back and forth. He does take a, a W um, here, here and there. He's not necessarily like constantly downtrodden, but I think the things that they use from the film specifically is more the device for the setups in his relationships. So he works at the clown shop that does sign spinning. It's basically just a replacement for the, being a taxi driver. You know, it's an on-call job that puts him out in the street where he sees the trouble around him 
and has that problem himself interacting with the words world socially the same way Travis Bickle does. But other than that, I don't see like it's not aping from the film like some reviews would call it. Well, the, no, the themes are definitely there. It, that being that the both of those characters are defiant against what what they see as a moral decay going on in, in the world in which they live. Uh, of course, uh, in the case of the Joker, it's a little bit more fictionalized, whereas with uh, Travis Bickle, it, it's just yeah, after that whole like Nixon era BS and then looking toward, again, new political figures for a new hope, but he kind of rejects that idea. And that, that that's kind of touched on in Joker, where they ask, oh, is this like politically motivated or whatever? And he's like, nope, not at all. I don't give a shit, which is, again, another uh, div- um, divergence, if that's the word to use, from the formula of Taxi Driver. And yeah, I just like how it it, it just kind of breaks off from those structures while still kind of keeping the formula uh, a little bit to uh, to the T, but it, it goes off the tangents in all the right directions. And again, it, it nothing is wholly original. And I like that they were very upfront about their inspirations for this movie because, you know what, I'm going to shit on it. Uh, it Chapter 2, okay? They have this stupid scene toward the end with the severed head, and I knew it the second it fucking happened... They were going to do a reference to the thing. The, the head it sprouts all the legs, and it looks it looks like crap. And then Bill Hader, uh, who did great in the movie, though, is like, you've got to be fucking kidding. Like, hearty har har, fucker. Like, that's the shit that pisses me off. But at least, <laughs> at least in uh, Joker and before it, Todd Phillips, Joaquin Phoenix, they're like, yeah, like that's, that's the framework we use. But there's a wholly original story here of this this character that hasn't really been portrayed in its comic mediums or in its uh, film mediums. So, yeah, I, I still appreciate that they went off of a framework and were upfront about it, but took different twists and turns and, and uh, created a very believable structure or a very believable arc for this character that could otherwise be monkeyed up or just a carbon copy of Taxi Driver, which I think a lot of less competent directors and filmmakers would would succumb to. Yeah, I was surprised that it wasn't more like the two films that it has been, uh, you know, cited that it was inspired by King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. I think a lesser filmmaker would have just recreated that. And there was plenty of opportunity to do that with the whole talk show setup and Robert De Niro being involved. Uh, but no, they decided to go with something that I felt was at least mostly original. And it I, the thing that impressed me most about Joker is probably that it not only felt authentic to the era that it took place in, there was no real fan service. You didn't really see too many, uh, like, for example, if this was a lesser film, you might have seen a billboard in the background with a giant, like, Ghostbusters poster or something along those lines where it feels almost like Ready Player One. Uh, and, and and it really soaks in the uh, you know the, the the vibe of that era and doesn't push it too far, which I appreciated. And I liked that this was a low stakes movie, even though it turns out to be uh, of higher stakes than maybe we walk into for that grand finale. It just feels like okay, there's an mo set by the Joker. He's gonna kill himself on this talk show. That's the plot. Doesn't quite go that way. And then things evolve from there, but then end. Well, the the film doesn't use like contemporary 1978 to 1983, that kind of period the film takes place in music. It, u- it uses a lot of 50s, 60s tracks. Uh, it's not until you get to the scene where he's finally in Joker, he's finally in all of the clothes and the makeup, and he's going down those steps and you get i can't remember the name of the song but the uh rock and roll rock part and roll two, part two. Roll like gary glitter the pedophile it was a, it, it was a terrible music choice for that scene i think oh i, I love that choice no that i uh, yeah i, I i'm i'm more with jake on this one i think i absolutely i think it was that. so over the top that it was iconic so, yeah, the word for that that i would use is it's very melancholy it's like ironic and melancholy i loved it right yeah i i i did not enjoy that particular choice. I thought the rest of the music in the film was fine, but it was then it was to me it just kind of felt 
I don't know, it felt, it felt off tone for the rest of it. I don't know, you guys like it, that's cool. I, I didn't. It doesn't seem like that's the, the track that Arthur Fleck has playing in his head whenever he's ready to go to go do this big thing, you know, and that's a lot of what I... How I took that that whole musical cue was that he finally realizes what he wants to be, and that's right after he kills that guy he works with who in the original script this is his, like, stepdad. Mm-hmm. That's the guy who bashed his head, and I think they changed that, though, in the movie. There's no real reference to him he, being he that guy. He killed the Yellow King from True Detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he's most known for. He's also on Barry... The Bill Hader show okay. we praised earlier, <laughs> uh, and so he he dons the white makeup, he becomes Joker, and then he has like this big moment. And the rest of the movie, he's a a more evolved version of himself. So I would agree with you that Arthur Fleck maybe wouldn't have tuned into that, but for this Joker character, I feel like it makes sense. Well, you know what other uh, what oh. Yeah, Jerry, go ahead. Then I'll make a no, point, a uh, different it's point. Not, it's not a criticism of the turn. It's just the music choice there. It's one of the times that I just didn't think that it fit. There could be any other type of upbeat thing that was similar to what had come before or closer to the actual score be, and, and and then fade into the regular score like it did, right? The, the song does fade into the regular score and it becomes a more a dark tone towards the end of it. And you're like, well, fuck, he really is going to go, you know, shoot somebody. And that eventually you discover that he's there to shoot himself. I was going to say, uh, maybe an obvious comparison, but to bring in another kind of, uh, film inspiration that came behind this, nor there's a lot of Norman Bates, uh, atmosphere there as well, too. Maybe, maybe not as strong, but the whole kind of, uh, man child aspect, taking care of the mother and whatnot, Again, maybe something that is um, kind of a commentary on some of those loner types today that a lot of people were alarmed this film would trigger. Not to get into that conversation, I don't know if we want to, but I thought that was another uh, clear inspiration that was there. This kind of classical archetype of this very odd recluse that, uh, I I mean, outside of the whole mental illness thing. So the inspirations, I I think, are deeply ingrained here, but um, that's just another another inspiration that I connected with the film. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Yeah. I liked his, his almost Munchasm mom, Penny Fleck, that, that character needs to exist because you see him like trying to please her in, in some respect. And I like also take care of her. And at the same time you get, you get to understand how it would impact him to discover that maybe what she's been telling him isn't necessarily true. And that's another thing that I think the film does a really good job and is establishing for a long time and multiple times that this is what Penny Fleck believes their family lore is. And this is what she's explained. That's what Arthur now believes once he discovers it, you know, and it's, it's a a moment of turmoil for them. And as it unravels and becomes what it is, it's, actually impactful you do believe somebody would be maybe actually driven fucking mad because of the the, especially at his age learning something new almost creating an identity for yourself getting rejected in your attempt to seize that identity and then discovering that maybe a good portion of that was a lie anyways like that stuff's fucked up and that well let me let me ask you guys about that because did you take it as she's just a crazy nut and she did lie? Or do you feel like there was a slight implication that maybe the Wayne family might be covering the secret up? Because that would be very fitting for the time, especially with elites. I think it happens before he he's off his medication because the scene takes place much later in which he kills uh, the Yellow King from True Detective. <laughs> and just before he does that, he says, like, oh, I've been off my medication. Um, so... Yeah, so I think it's just before he kind of goes down that rabbit hole. Me, I I took it as um I took it as the Wayne the Waynes had covered it up because the movie really touches on j- just the the vast deeply connected corruption that there that there tends to be obviously mirroring things that are going on today, but certainly in the 70s and 80s they, the, the film is about a reaction to corruption in society or morality or whatever you might make of it. 
So my yeah, my conclusion was that the Waynes had had it scrambled up and made made the mom look like a loon, even though she kind of was already to uh yeah, to to bury well, that. He gets that picture, he finds that picture and turns it over and it says love your smile T T W on in on the back. So that right. that I mean it makes it even more fucked because it could it could be entirely true, right? And this is the one piece of evidence that she actually has that is he showed some affection to her outside of just what you would get from an employee and your employer, as he said. And then also maybe it's part of what led to her neuroses. Perhaps he's he was very personal and said, "Love your smile," you know, being a nice guy and. She turned that into, oh, well, we fucked and I'm pregnant and, or I, we fucked and this baby that I adopted isn't is is his because like, she's already a little bit crazy. But the then you have to wonder if he's really adopted. Why did he imagine that he had a girlfriend and was in a relationship with someone in the same way that his mother would have if he wasn't adopted right so that that's penny flex thing is that as far as we know she may or may not have had a relationship with thomas wayne if it if she didn't it's because she's insane and she imagined the relationship so that's something that you would pass genetically that arthur fleck could be afflicted with so if he has that same thing then Penny Fleck imagined the relationship. But if she imagined the relationship, then he's not adopted because he wouldn't have the right, same and, neuroses. And, right. And, and one thing that I guess could lend that theory uh, a, a little bit of a currency would be that his uh, identity prior to being adopted is non-existent. This kind of plays to the, the Joker mythos where you don't really know who the Joker is is he's got multiple identities and he could be anybody he doesn't have a name there's no information on him so this could have been easily forged or what have you if that was indeed thomas wayne's child right um you think that a little bit more effort maybe would be put in but no or alternatively uh they're playing to the comic book lore of that character so i don't know i, I think it could go either Way, which, by the way, uh, can, can can we pause? So that scene where he re-enters in um, what's it? Zazie Beats is that how you say it? Uh, her Sophie. Okay, okay. Uh, her character, Sophie's apartment toward the end of the film. Like, did anybody else love that scene as much as I did? That that scene was just harrowing. And when he walks out, I was wondering, you know, what did he do? Because the implication right. there is that he's just so far off the edge. He's gonna he's gonna fucking slaughter her and her, her and her sleeping daughter and that was just i i don't know how you guys felt that was just a masterfully acted scene and the uh the soundtrack was so brooding and the mm. cinematography and then when he walks out it's like it leaves you that cliffhanger of well what what the hell well, do you think he did we hear police sirens in the background as he is entering his apartment right after they hard cut from that scene so they clearly love the ambiguity of these certain aspects of the film. I mean, I think you could very easily take away that he did wind up killing Sophie and her daughter. Um, and that can just be left to the imagination because otherwise what she didn't call the police. She didn't call right. somebody after the fact. She just let him, just let, let him, him be. I mean, he lives right down exactly. the hall. Yeah. 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 It's, it's right. It's ambiguous enough that, uh, you can probably you can presume that they that what he did was pretty gnarly, but also could you kill a little kid a little kid like that in that scenario in an R-rated movie? I mean, it's a lot like it's a lot like the fanatic where the gardener's dead in the backyard for five <laughs> days, and then finally <laughs> they call the police. Well, I think it's because the psychology that the, that the film is uh, making some kind of commentary on is nihilism. So it's just if you believe whether or not. He's already that nihilistic at that scene where he's again he's in Sophie's apartment. He's got his head pretty much like hanging. Do you think he's gone that far down the nihilistic rabbit hole by then? And I would say, again, because it's it's so ambiguous, I think it could go either way. Just for me, I, I felt 
with the build up to that scene, the implication that it that it was just giving with the music, with again the acting, the 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 tone of the, the framing and whatnot, and everything. I I think it's saying that like yeah, he's at the point of no return because uh, because if not, then that scene slightly anticlimactic, in my opinion. You know what? By the way, uh, how did you guys all see this movie? Because I'm I'm gonna be the snobby douchebag here and brag about. I I was able to go to a 70 millimeter screening of this movie uh, over in uh, Brighton, Massachusetts, and I gotta tell you, man, if if there's a movie that this year you can market to see in 70 millimeter, it was this one. Like the, again, I I said it toward the beginning of the show, but this movie is just again dripping with atmosphere, with beautiful cinematography, and and just. Uh, just amazing discipline added to every frame. It's kind of like how um, uh, the, the author Tom West said on my um, podcast of Mandy that it, every frame is like a painting mm. in this movie. So, how did you guys see it? Did you see it in in a reasonable setting like that, or I went to go see it in IMAX in Miami, and it was really. I, I, in retrospect, I thought it wouldn't make that big of a deal, but I, I thought it was a superior choice than just going to see a regular showing. Yeah, I just, I, I just saw it at a regular showing. I don't have really good access to any types of theaters. I could go to IMAX, but it's uh, like fifty miles away. So, no, I just saw the digital the theater. It was fine. There weren't many people in there, and I didn't have that, didn't have that low like rumble of of speaking. You know, in a, in a group, it wasn't like an event. It was just you know, sitting at a movie. There is a, a good dose of melancholy humor in this in this movie. I think a lot of people have actually missed it. I've seen a lot of reviews or, yeah, written reviews or YouTube reviewers saying like, oh, this movie's so bleak and like there's not one frame of like uh, of levity or anything like that. I think that's a lie. I think there there are some definite moments that stick out there that are, yeah, dark, dark in tone in terms of the situation that's happening in the film, but uh, there's the midget failing to reach the lock to get himself out. My 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 theater loved that scene. Yeah. They started cackling manically. I mean, I think people are just really used to having every single dramatic moment met with a quirky line from Robert Downey Jr. in their superhero movies <sighs> that they've been spoiled. They've been they've been their brains have been washed out by Disney and Marvel. So, no, for for example, here's one maybe maybe you guys didn't like this. I thought it was funny though. So the the scene in the train where there's kind of the uh the clown uprising, all the clowns that are going to the rally and those the uh, two detectives are chasing after Arthur. And when the clowns uh, kind of overwhelm the two officers and, and they all crash out of the train and they're, they're getting, these officers are getting, or detectives are getting beat up by the clowns. They look up to Arthur who just smiles and like dances and <laughs> skips around in place. I thought that was really funny in like a dark way. It, I laughed at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, funny that happens it is masked in the aesthetic right and for me i was immersed enough in the film that maybe people laughed or something i didn't i didn't hear it i was i was in arthur fleck's storyline and that's that's what i was paying attention to and that's what i think the film did the best was having a well-built world with lore being an unfolding around you <clears throat> without hitting you over the head with a lot of it. Like, I thought the super rats be not being a B-plot, not having anything to do with the story, just being part of the background and on occasion seeing them move around, never once having one come right up to the camera or anything like that. I thought all of like that and, and the trash adds to this um, uh, immersive aesthetic to it that it really makes... Uh, you don't feel the runtime at all. The, the movie starts and it's and it's over and you don't feel like you sat there for however long you had to sit there for because it hits all the right beats the right way and it's styled in such a way that you sort of expect the amount of insanity that eventually happens to come but it's it's not it doesn't take forever to get there it doesn't feel like it takes so long to get to this cleft uh, climax i completely agree i think the most disposable aspect of the movie is probably 
the sequences that included Sophie, but it didn't intrude upon anything. If anything, it added that extra layer that allows questions to be asked about like the Thomas Wayne thing. And, you know, it, it makes you question uh, the depths of the uh, insanity or instability of that character. So it still adds. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there was any fat that needed to be trimmed with this movie. I thought it was extremely well done. Uh, maybe Mark Maron. Oh, yeah, less Mark Maron. It was kind of a lot of Mark Maron. Next time, fewer Mark Marons. All 45 seconds of him. Yeah, that was the slowest part of the movie. I felt like I was, I was, I was in an old folks home. They actually cut out uh, a scene with him and Robert De Niro that was away from Joaquin Phoenix's Arthur Fleck character, where uh, I, that would have been like the first aspect of the movie that breaks from his perspective. It's right after they leave his dressing room, right after they leave the green room, and they have like a quick conversation. That wound up getting scrapped for whatever uh, and, reason. And shout out to Robert De Niro for finally just letting himself be fat and old in a fucking scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was fun yeah. to see him give half of a shit for the first time in like 20 years. It's not that this was a great performance per se, but I finally felt like he was there. And it was a good role for him to play. I thought he played it well as this Murray Franklin late night guy. And uh, again, the word I gave it when I originally posted about it was earnest. And I, I, yeah, I think that's what it was. It was just refreshing to see him wake up from the whatever fucking manic state he's been in sure. in recent years and just put something out there generally nicer. I don't know. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the exchange between him and uh, Arthur at the at the climax. I mean, right before he he gets um yeah his head turned into a Gallagher's water watermelon. Uh, I I enjoyed that whole exchange. I bought it. I. I just I loved the uh, just the conflicting nature of the dialogue and, and whatnot. Of course, they they had to bring it down that kind of slippery slope so that Joaquin Phoenix could essentially tell us we live in a society uh, going off script for that. By the way, yeah, the the script said uh, a system, and they changed it. <laughs> I didn't know. Which I but, but picking up from that scene, like, what do you guys think? Um, what did you guys think of the violence in this movie? I think uh, Jerry was making a, a good point that it, it it hits harder to home, especially with the, the big scene with the talk show and with De Niro's head being blown off pretty much. Well, uh, I, I, I wanted to branch off from that and ask you guys if you think it hits home because it's smaller acts of violence than maybe what we're used to in comic book films, but also because it mirrors reality especially during that time period like the whole train sequence to me reads as uh bernie gets do you guys know anything about that like the the where it was a guy defending himself against uh three hoodlums and he murdered uh all three of them i think they were actually like teenagers and it became this big sensational story of the 1980s and then later on it kind of feels like and not necessarily an r bud dwyer moment but maybe uh christine shevick i think her last name was who was who shot herself on air? It feels like something like that with the whole set and the cameras, and you see the studio and everything. It feels in line with something like that. No, I think so too, and I think it goes from kind of what Jerry was saying that at the beginning of the film, it's it's a lot more sparing in it, in its brutality. It's just you know, people getting in like tussles and whatnot. He gets beaten up by like the the gang of hoodlums or whatever, and then the 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 fight on the train it's nothing too grotesque or anything like that and then to partner with what you were you were saying Lorez that um that kind of caught live on air accidentally feel to it and it and it just has more sting because you know that, that it's something terrible that it's building up to but they go sparing on everything until you get to uh, when he smashes the guy's head in but even even up to that it, there's something about when the gun finally goes off at the end and it, it was just from the whole buildup as well. I think it's a perfectly brutal payoff and it goes into those real world elements that you were talking about that it really had me on the edge of my seat and gave me a perfect payoff when all that had, had transpired. Yeah. And I thought, I really thought he was going to kill himself. Like that's, even though I knew it was a Joker film and essentially the character has to exist as the Joker by the time the film ends, 
I kind of really thought he was going to kill himself, like his original plan. I kind of figured he was going to go and fucking kill himself on air. And that was going to cause like a, you know, a, a some crazy Joker revolution after some type of monologue. I didn't actually expect him to kill De Niro until he started to talk shit to him. And it was then that's I was sitting in the theater and I was thinking I just watched this actually happen to actual Joaquin Phoenix like a week ago when he's telling Jimmy Fallon about how he likes to break dance. It's like a, a thing that he doesn't share with anybody because he likes to keep it to himself. But it's, you know, a real important release. And yeah, Kimmel. Uh, and he starts laughing at him. Brutal. And it's like, yeah, you're laughing at it. But I mean, it's really important to me. And I was sitting there. I was like, I wonder if he fucking brought a gun to that. I wonder if he fucking... I'm not saying anybody should kill Jimmy Kimmel, but uh, <laughs> anyway. I don't know. I, I, I walk into a lot of these movies nowadays where there's so much hype and buildup and people are talking about how, oh, it, it, this is the movie of the year. And it's all these event films. And then you leave and you kind of convince yourself a little bit like, yeah, that was that was cool. That was good. And then a week or two passes and it's like, yeah, that was more the same. I got tricked. I got had. I did not feel that way with Joker there's like a lasting buzz to this movie because it's a real movie and it executes all of its cylinders so well uh, I I in my opinion I would actually place this film uh close to the top of films for this year thus far anyway obviously we still have a couple of months left How, where does this movie fall for you guys did it live up to your anticipations did it exceed that do you find it to be a good movie or just a good comic book related movie no i think th this is a fantastic movie on all fronts i think i think this one is uh gonna stand the test of time uh, uh just for sheer filmmaking alone and, and just the filmmaking prowess that just seeps through th this film's uh, celluloid i think that that's enough that it's gonna live on but then when you take into consideration the performance the the subject matter the the kind of contemporary things it touches on and then not to mention with uh, the not-so-contemporary things it touches on about the 1980s or the 70s and whatnot. I think it's transcendent through a lot of different generations. And uh, then again, it, it just still has that shock uh, value factor that apparently was was a real uh, point of contention with some people outside uh, our general circle. But yeah, I, I think this just delivered and... Um, it's very, very interesting just because the, the, the Ledger performance in The Dark Knight was kind of the benchmark for its generation. And I again, still a great performance. And I think it's still very symbolic of like 2008 America. But I, I think Joaquin Phoenix's performance and the, the take that they put on him it, really outside the lore of the comic book character, in my opinion, uh, I think touches on so many things that will maybe be talked about uh, decades from now. It, in terms of its contemporary relevance and whatnot. But I don't think it's going to be something restricted to this time as always. Oh, it was good back then. I think this is always going to be a, a really good movie. Yeah. I, I would have to agree. This is actually probably my favorite film of, of the year. Um, maybe even the last few years other than a, a couple. Uh, I think that it's executed so well that, more more than one watch through is really necessary to like super enjoy a lot of this the detail that they put in and a lot of the work they put into the film especially Joaquin Phoenix's performance I don't necessarily think that it's like better or worse than the Heath Ledger Joker as far as creating a character sort of a unique take on, on the character that fits within the world and is in some ways relatable and understandable as far as their motives go. I just think that it's a, a different take on the character, which is the one thing that I've always really liked about DC characters is that there can be complete different iterations of the same character. And they might have interactions with the same people from two different books, but they're completely different. And I think this film has so much to like as a Joker film and as a film and not, not just a, a bit of cinema either, either way, you know, where maybe Avengers is a really good superhero film, but a boring movie. Uh, I think that this is really good on both fronts and has a lot of rewatchability. It's going to be really interesting to see how 
They tie this movie into the CW's Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> oh, yeah. What yeah, of course. Fuck? What the hell? That, that I think, has a, a positive and negative effect on some of the reviews that you're going to read for the film is because there are going to people that mm. are, there are going to be people that go to see Joker and expect to see something within, maybe not within that, that connected universe, but you know, something that fits the aesthetic that's established in that, in those series that are currently running and not something where it's not the, the there's no spandex, there's no fighting, there's no gadgets. Don't be surprised if in 10 years they start to retcon this somehow into something that is of a, a lower stock. I know for the Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, crossover event, television crossover event, they've got the Superman Returns Superman in it. They're bringing in the Michael Keaton Batman lore where you see a paper and it says Bruce Wayne set to marry Selena Kyle. And then they're bringing in... Robert Wall, who plays Alexander Knox from Batman 89, wow. uh, Vicky Vale's partner, he is going to make an appearance that ties that series in with whatever they're doing. Jesus. Here. Terrible. Talk, talk about really digging back. Robert Wall. TV's dead. TV's di- no one's watching TV. So the idea of what is good ratings has changed so dramatically from the year 2004. In 2004, you had to have like. 14 to 18 million viewers watching your series in order to keep that show on the air. However, nothing gets canceled nowadays. Survivor is on its 39th season and it has like 8 million viewers. That's not an ex- and it's still 8 o'clock sharp Wednesday night, like it's always been. So, I mean, these CW shows can carry on forever as long as there are advertisers willing to spend money on that slot. Except Arrow. Arrow is getting canceled this year. Everything else yeah. is going strong. <laughs> they should tie that into the crisis on Infinite Earths. They should do Scooby Doo as well. He he met up with Batman one time. Scooby Doo. What they did have a Scooby Doo episode of Supernatural. They called it Scooby Natural. Terrible. Was that the same episode where Scooby Doo met up with John Cena and solved a mystery? Maybe. I don't know if you're kidding or not. I've never seen that show. I be- I believe you. I I. I mean, they just put out this year a Batman versus the Ninja Turtles animated movie. And the, the realm of animation has no bounds. We will see animated Joaquin Phoenix and Kevin Conroy squaring on <laughs> before you know. Oh, yeah. He's in the crisis on Infinite Earths. They, they're dressing him up in, uh, yeah, he, he's going to be Batman. He's a ginger. And 80 years old. <laughs> yes. Good idea. He's got that disgusting mole that's like right here. It's it's going to be awful when it's pointing out of the fucking cowl, but Mark Hamill's going to be the Joker in it. <sighs> that's the exact reaction that deserved a squeak of a chair. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't I don't think it I don't think it really fucking matters. The film will hold up. Uh, people will go back and watch it in 10 or mm-hmm. 15 years. It could have it could have no awards or every award. I don't necessarily think it will. I don't think it, it'll matter at all. The narrative, the narrative didn't impact the well, premiere. It ends up being the single, the single best premiere in October has ever had. And there's a lot of great October films too. So it's like, it's not, it's not that it, it's not, none of that shit really can impact the film. It's, it stands on its own as a really good film. Why don't we wrap this episode up? Because we are, uh, going uh, quite quite the distance with Joker, and there's still I feel like we could do three episodes on this movie, just dissecting it, analyzing all of the different aspects, and there's still so much we haven't even talked about yet regarding it. Uh, but thank you, gentlemen. Hey, everything Low Res Comfort Systems Headshot LLC. Just stay tuned. A lot of things going on in the background. Uh, listen to Dissecting Cinema in the meantime between episodes of Movies with Low Res. And ratings as well with Jerry. So yeah, just stay tuned. There's so much uh, that's that's in the crosshairs right now. So thank you for listening. Yeah, that just those things. That's perfect. Follow, follow me on Twitter, mulatto underscore Jesus. Follow me on Twitter. I'll call you. I'll call you a bad name. How much longer? How much longer until you get banned for racial slurs for having mulatto? I don't know. I don't know. I've heard that's. That's a taboo term in the modern age. I've I've seen people complain before in in different locations on Twitch. I've commented on Twitch or whenever I resubscribe. One one time a streamer was like, "Oh, I don't think I could read that word, man. You better better check your you better check it." I was like, "Dude, the hell!" 
Shut the hell up. Is that is this, is that word is yeah. not so goddamn old timey that we think it's racist yet? Fuck off. Great. Okay. Well, that has been movies, dissecting cinema, and ratings. Another mega episode. Thank you for listening.